2: that one of the most prolific sex offenders in Britain had pleaded guilty in court, horrifying accounts of rape, sexual abuse and controlling behaviour emerged. And a warning, as you'd expect, this episode does contain discussion around those themes. What you wouldn't expect is that the man perpetrating these crimes was also working as a police officer in the Metropolitan Police.
3: This is one of the most shocking cases the Crown Prosecution Service has dealt with involving a serving police officer.
2: For more than two decades, David Carrick, a serial rapist, hid behind his police uniform, telling women nobody would believe them because he was an officer.
3: A victim of the serial rapist, David Carrick has told Sky News he used his job as a firearms officer to gain her trust before subjecting her to months of physical and mental abuse, telling her, the safest place you can be is with me. Anyone hearing of the 49 counts David Carrick has pleaded guilty to against 12 victims would agree the sheer magnitude of his offending is horrifying.
1: Prosecutors describe the offences as a, quote, relentless campaign of sexually and mentally abusing women. Including attempted rape, sexual assault, and possessing a gun to cause fear.
2: After the shock, the outrage, the apologies, and the promises, yet again, of reform, one question remains unanswered. How on earth did this happen?
1: All I can do is... Um, apologise that over 20 years, um, the Met got this wrong.
2: You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, a serial rapist inside the Met Police.
3: I'm Fiona Hamilton. I'm the crime and security editor at The Times. It means I cover all kinds of crime, terrorism stories, but the large parts of the last couple of years have been about
2: police-perpetrated abuse. And Fiona, there's been possibly one of the most alarming cases of that in the last few weeks.
1: David Carrick admitted in court yesterday to abusing and sexually assaulting 12 women from 2003 to 2020.
0: Carrick has entered guilty pleas to 49 offences, including rape, false imprisonment, coercive control, and sexual assault.
2: You were there in court.
3: What was it like? I mean, it was a very quick court hearing. It was over and done with in about ten minutes. I mean, what struck me about Carrick was, which often struck me about people who commit heinous acts, it's just how ordinary he looked he was dressed in a dark grey suit no emotion on his face looked down slightly at the floor as he admitted to being the worst sex offender really in british history because that's what that final set of charges make him i mean he pleaded guilty to 48 rapes against a dozen women and a whole host of of sex offenses beyond that As we all know, the authorities are really struggling to bring rape cases and sex fence cases and conviction rates are alarmingly low. But a case like Carrick is really interesting because one woman came forward, reported very violent rape and and sexual assaults, and then the publicity of the name opened the floodgates and lots more women from all over the place come forward. None of them know each other, yet they all tell very specific, very similar stories about Carrick, very horrible but specific and and obscure sexual acts. It's a very compelling piece of evidence that women from all sorts of different relationships and all different walks of life and from different geography who don't know each other have said this about him. And so when you put that all together, I think the prosecution were able to paint a very strong picture of a heinous sex offender and there was very little for him to defend.
2: You know, some of these cases go back a long way, early 2000s. Just take us back to the start of this story.
3: So, we go back two decades. In the year 2000, it was the year before he was employed. He was a suspect uh, in a Metropolitan Police investigation into two offences, and they were in relation to his former partner, and Carrick had refused to believe that the relationship was over. So, one allegation was of malicious communications, the second was an allegation of burglary, and it's my understanding that he was accused of going back into her house and stealing her underwear. Now, he wasn't arrested. He was a suspect in a criminal investigation and no further action was taken. Now, the following year, he applied to join the Metropolitan Police. The Met haven't said clearly whether that incident came up in his vetting, but you would expect that it did. Mm. But for whatever reason, he was employed as a police officer and he was put on borough policing as a response officer, where he remained for several years, There were more incidents over those years, yet he was then appointed to the sensitive role carrying a firearm in the Diplomatic Protection Command, which is the unit that guards parliament and embassies and important buildings. And yet he was in that role despite a whole series of complaints about him and his predatory behaviour.
2: Fiona, you've been reporting on some of the earliest rape cases that we know he was involved with. Just give us a sense of what happened and the sort of behaviours that he was displaying. So detectives and prosecutors have said
3: that basically any woman in Carrick's life, any woman he came across, he saw as a potential target for abuse. Obviously, He's pleaded guilty to a series of rapes. There were other sexual assaults. There were other attempted rapes that he's admitted. But there was a lot of coercive and controlling behaviour as well. Some of it was physically violent. Um, He imprisoned some of his victims in, there was a small downstairs cupboard at his home in Stevenage, and he trapped them in there. He changed their daily routines. He controlled what they wore, what they ate, where they slept. One victim has come forward to say that he placed cameras around the house and he watched her while he was at work and he abused her for taking certain items of food out of the fridge. Uh, He made another, clean the house naked. He obviously was extremely manipulative and some of them have said he was very charming at the beginning and he lured them in. And he used his position as a police officer to lure them in. He told them to trust him. I'm a cop. You can trust me. He said he would make them feel safe because he was a police officer. But actually, his role as a police officer was a major part of the reason that they did then feel trapped and they didn't report him and they didn't get away. Uh, He told them that they wouldn't be believed because it was his word against theirs and he was a police officer, and the people they would be reporting to were his colleagues. He also used his role as a firearms officer to threaten them. He made threats to kill. So it was a very carefully constructed web of manipulation and threats and power that he was able to use against all of these victims. Were any of these cases known to
2: the police back then?
3: So his crimes would be horrifying enough if they were being carried out completely in secret over 20 years, but that's simply not the case. And what has emerged is that there were at least nine missed opportunities by police to intervene and to stop Carrick since the year 2000, all of them but one during his time that he was a police officer. There's a really striking complaint in 2019. Hertfordshire constabulary officers attended his home and the allegation was that he had assaulted a woman during a domestic incident and he had grabbed her by the neck. He wasn't arrested and no further action was taken, but they did refer the matter to the Met, obviously knowing that he was a firearms officer at that force. And what happened at the Metropolitan Police was that he was given words of advice, which is a very, very low-level sanction, about informing his superiors about off-duty incidents, and it was very quickly determined he had no case to answer for misconduct. But by that point, had they looked at his file, they would have seen a string of complaints about him since 2001 because there were at least two other domestic abuse incidents So there was a real pattern there that they just failed to join the dots. All the incidents were treated in isolation. And this is a big problem, a big wider problem with how police forces handle misconduct, that if somebody hasn't been charged with a criminal offence, too often in the past, I would say in the majority of cases, the case gets closed and the person continues with their day job. And that's exactly what happened with
0: Carrick.
2: Fiona, we'll come on to the systemic problems that this seems to highlight in the police system and how on earth this was possible. Before we do, though, all of this sort of changes in 2021 when he's arrested. How did that come about? So there were two
3: complaints about Carrick to police in 2021. The first was in July. It's crucial to this case to remember that in July 2021, There was immense scrutiny on the Metropolitan Police about the way it handled alleged abusers and predators within its ranks. And the reason for that was that PC Wayne Cousins had just pleaded guilty to the abduction, rape and murder of Sarah Everard. Now, that happened at the Old Bailey that July. Just a few days later, a woman came forward to Hertfordshire Police to report rape by David Carrick, Now, that was reported to the Met. A decision was taken to place Carrick on restricted duties. I believe his firearm was taken off him, but he stayed at work.
2: He stayed at work even though he was being accused of rape. Yes, in the same month
3: that Wayne Cousins, a member of the same unit, had admitted his despicable crimes against Sarah Everard. I should say the Met have said that Carrick and Cousins worked in different parts of the unit, that there was nothing to suggest they knew each other, and they've said that their records indicate they were never posted together. But there is really serious questions for the Metropolitan Police that in that particular time period, when nationally there was outcry about how a police officer could abuse their power in that way. And there was huge concern, because if you remember, there'd been a deluge of stories of women saying that they had been exploited and abused by police officers. They failed in that month at that time period, and it was so febrile. The atmosphere was so febrile. They failed to root out David Carrick, one of the worst sex offenders in British history. And what happened was... The victim didn't want to proceed with that complaint to Hertfordshire Constabulary, and the restrictions were lifted and Carrick went back to work.
2: I mean, that, that's just so startling. He goes back to work despite the allegations against him.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I can't, I just, it's unfathomable to me, really. Uh, then within a short period of time... Another woman is prompted to come forward after Cousins is sentenced to a whole life order, and she reports a rape against Carrick, a different one this time. She alleged that she was raped at a premier inn in St Albans the previous year, that he held her neck down, that he called himself a dominant bastard, and he made derogatory comments about her. He was very quickly charged with that rape. It was announced publicly and he was suspended from the Met Police. Now, there's an irony here in that he pleaded not guilty to that rape and that is is going on the file as a technical not guilty. It's not being proceeded with. It was her bravery, though, in coming forward and disclosing that offence that led to him being charged and led to... Lots and lots of other women feeling that it was the time that they could come forward as well. And so that was the case that opened the floodgates.
2: Coming up... Having missed nine opportunities to stop David Carrick... What's the fallout now for the Met? That's in just a moment.
1: I'm Jonathan Ames. I'm the legal editor of The Times. The
3: interesting thing about my patch is that the law covers every
1: element of human life. Therefore, I get to look at politics, the arts, sport, almost everything. And it's a privilege to be able to cover it for the paper that has a reputation of being
0: The Lawyer's Paper in Fleet Street. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers
3: of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.
1: Fiona,
2: we started to talk about all of those opportunities when the police could have done something about it over the years, the nine times they should have picked up on this man's behaviour. Where do you think in the process things are going wrong for them not to realise that this is somebody who is a serial offender?
3: Well, I think there's a couple of problems here. My view of this case is that while David Carrick's offending has really shocked the public... And the scale and breadth of it and the length of time and the number of victims is unprecedented. The ingredients of the case, the things that make it up, the things that he did, the things that he said and the factors that enabled him to offend, they've been replicated in dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of other police abuse cases going back a decade. I think there's two issues and the first is, frankly, these issues have not been taken seriously enough. Domestic abuse for a very long time has not been taken seriously enough. It's been improving in recent years, but there's a long way to go. And the same with sexual offences and coercive controlling behaviour. And then the second issue is that even if these things were progressed and looked at, if they didn't get to a criminal charge, The case goes on the file, but nothing else happens to it. And even somebody gets a series of cases, they're all treated in isolation. Nobody builds a pattern together and thinks we've got a real pattern of a predatory offender here. Yes, he's never been charged with criminal offenses, but this is somebody who has a series of complaints in a series of different relationships from a series of different victims.
2: And yet no action is taken. I mean, just explain that. So this goes on his file at work. Each one of those incidents is is there. Is it just that when people look at his file, they're not allowed to consider it altogether? Or is it not all collected in the same place?
3: I just think there's a lethargy about it. I've asked questions of the Met, much more specific questions about exactly what was happening at certain points and who made what decision-making. And they're yet to answer and they've actually said that because there's an independent inquiry that has been ordered by the Home Secretary into the case, they don't want to compromise that
2: inquiry, so they won't be answering my questions. Does this also, again, sort of point towards problems even with the vetting process?
3: Oh, absolutely. You know, vetting has changed a lot in the past 20 years and improvements have been made. There are more stringent checks, Uh, red flags, we would hope get raised quicker and unnoticed. And but, I mean, the Metropolitan Police's initial response to this case was to say, I would not expect anyone with his pattern of behaviour to be
0: in the police service today. Our work to identify and rid the met of corrupt officers is determined and it is focused and it will continue.
3: But that was such a frustrating answer because this isn't ancient history. We're talking about complaints made about this man in 2021 yeah it's less than two years ago and I'm afraid I just don't have the answer to you I wish I had the answer of why that happened and why it was allowed to happen but I just I can't fathom it and I I just don't have the answer and I don't think the Met has given us the answer and until they do I just don't think they can restore public trust
2: I mean, what was their official response to this? You know, this is a man who is one of the country's worst sex offenders, as you say. What have they said about him? Well, Sir
3: Mark Rowley, the new Metropolitan Commissioner, who was brought in in September to overhaul the force, he's held his hands up and said...
1: We have failed, and I'm sorry. He should not have been a police officer. We haven't applied the same sense of ruthlessness to guarding our own integrity, that we routinely apply to confronting criminals. I do know an apology doesn't go far enough, but I do think it's important to acknowledge our failings and for me to say, I'm sorry.
3: And he's acknowledged that public trust is really badly damaged by this, but he does seem to remain confident and buoyant that he can turn this ship around, that he can improve that public confidence. But I found it interesting in the week following Carrick's guilty pleas that there was a lot of public debate starting to creep in about whether that is indeed possible. You had Sir Keir Starmer talking about whether the Met might have to change its name because its reputation is so badly damaged. Obviously a name change on its own is nothing but a, a signal to the public that a real institutional
2: change. And what about the government? What's their stance on this? So
3: Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, has inherited from Pretty Patel an independent inquiry that was ordered in the wake of the Wayne Cousins case. She's announced that the same inquiry will look into David Carrick as well. The Angelini inquiry will move forward to observe and Uh, inquire very closely into policing culture so that we get a better idea of what's going wrong in policing and so that we can fix it. And so really we're in a bit of a holding pattern now while we wait for the results of that inquiry. There's a separate inquiry being carried out by Baroness Casey at the Met, a major internal review of not just the Cousins case, but wider issues in the Met, institutional cultures, And she's going to recommend a suite of measures to try and improve the force.
2: And obviously, a lot of the focus at the moment is on the Met in particular, because they've had this series of catastrophic cases. Do we have a sense? I mean, are they a one-off or are these problems, do they exist in other police forces across the country?
3: Oh, don't believe for one second that this is a metropolitan police problem the reaction to some of these police officers and perhaps the sheer scale of the problem, it's possible that it's worse at the Metropolitan Police. And it is a bigger force and it is the force that sets the standards for the rest of the country and it gets more attention as a result. But we have seen cases from all over the country in every single police force of police officers abusing their power um, for sexual gain and of sex offenders in a lot of cases. I've also seen lots of examples where it hasn't been taken seriously enough in other forces. This is absolutely not a London-centric problem. I've heard a string of senior officers sort of saying publicly that the last couple of years have been torrid, which they have been, and that they are urgently overhauling policies, rewriting practices such as vetting, to make sure they, they keep up with this phenomenon that has been uncovered. But The warning signs have been there for a lot longer than the last couple of years. There was an excoriating report on vetting, which was done by Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Constabulary just before Christmas, Mm. and they rightly pointed out Well, they first of all pointed out a whole string of vetting failures where people with sex offences were being let into police forces across the country and also people with criminal offending with worrying links to organised crime. They were just being let in with no restrictions on their police work and also with no supervision. But the point that Matt Palm, the inspector who ran that inquiry, made is that there had been major warning signs going back at least a decade, if not more, We ran front page news stories on this issue of police abusing women and of using their position for sexual advantage several years ago. I mean, it was 2011 that Northumbria police uncovered a ruthless sexual predator, Stephen Mitchell, in its ranks. He was given two life sentences. And the following year, a Cleveland officer was jailed for a series of rapes and sexual assaults on vulnerable women who he had preyed on while he was carrying out his police duties. The Independent Office of Police Conduct nearly a decade ago warned that officers and staff were using their powers to perpetrate abuse. This is not a new phenomenon. There has been plenty of time to take action and the action has, frankly, been inadequate.
2: it does feel like there's something cultural going wrong. You know, whether it was the Wayne Cousins case that you talked about, the killing of Sarah Everard, where we saw text messages afterwards from his phone, you get a sense that even if not all of these policemen are are perpetrating these crimes, quite often people around them, their colleagues, know that they're disreputable characters, they know the sort of things they're capable of, and they aren't reporting it.
3: That's right. I mean, if you go back to the David Carrick case... The Met has acknowledged that his colleagues knew him as Bastard Dave. Wow. And they've said, oh, it wasn't because of his sexual behaviour. It was because he was known to be mean and cruel. Well, those aren't qualities that I want in a police officer if I have to report an offence to them, for them to be mean and cruel. And aside from that, he had five complaints from the public that were nothing to do with sexual or predatory behaviour, but to do with use of force, misuse of his CS spray and of being rude to them. And I think it starts small, this problem. I think it starts with somebody being able to get away with maybe misogynistic comments, with being rude to colleagues, being overbearing to colleagues or making them feel uncomfortable, with sharing inappropriate material and jokes on WhatsApp. And it creates a culture in which people who are abusers, know that they can thrive and know that they can get away with stuff and that people won't report it. And then you put into that context somebody who's given a firearm, as in Carrick's case, who's given a lot of power over members of the public. Yeah. And sometimes it creates a monster, or maybe the monster's already created, but enables them to thrive. I think what's really key with a lot of the problems we're seeing in the police service, it comes down to whistleblowing and colleagues being given the confidence to come forward. Are they protected if
2: they if they do?
3: They're protected by their whistleblowing status. And under Mark Rowley, the Met has set up confidential hotlines for officers and staff to report in any concerns and also for the public too as well. But... I've had lots of people come to me over the years to say I reported wrongdoing, everybody found out about it, and I was ostracised by my colleagues. I had uh, somebody get in touch with me only this week from a force that's not the Met. He told me an appalling story about reporting abuse by a colleague and ending up that he was, he was made to feel bad about it, nobody listened to him. He got ostracised at work and he ended up leaving. And, I mean, he's the sort of officer that we need in the police force, but he's being forced to leave, and the person he reported is still working. And that is a terrible situation to be in. We get all these police chiefs coming forward saying there's lots of good officers in the service, and that is absolutely true. And there are lots of good officers who are utterly appalled by the events of the last couple of years, And the police chiefs say they should come forward and they should report, and don't worry, we protect you. But in the rank and file, they don't believe that, because it's not what's happening. And until they change that, and until they truly are protected, and there really is a culture of being able to come forward and report without fear or favour, these problems are not going to get addressed.
2: been listening to stories of our times a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of the times and the sunday times with me manveen rana and my guest the crime and security editor for the times fiona hamilton you can read more of fiona's work and all of her coverage of the david Carrick case at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription this episode was produced by taryn siegel and edward drummond The executive producer is Kate Ford and sound design was by David Crackles. If you can, please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find us. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.